to another Apollo Papyrus episode. I am Aaron Apollo Camp. For this episode, my interview guest is a former U.S. Coast Guard hospital corpsman, a developer of hospitals, and the author of the book To Care for Peace. His name is Jeffrey Charles Hardy, and here's my interview with Jeffrey. <coughs> Jeffrey Charles Hardy, welcome to Apollo Papyrus. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm feeling welcome. Feel free to introduce yourself to our listeners. Well, let's see. I'm Jeffrey Charles Hardy. I am a retired healthcare facility and management planner, which means that I go into a organization that wants to build and put a lot of money into building a hospital or a clinic, all sorts of different places in the world, and I facilitate that process and make sure that everything is done in the right order that it should be done. That's my job, as it was. Your book is called To Care for Peace, and without spoiling too much of, of, the, of that book you've written, what is it about? Well, it is nonfiction, and what that means is that I am trying to convey a new language, and the language is the one that we need to use during the pre-planning phase so that we can get ourselves from where we've been, and I say we as in humanity, for two and a half million years ago to today, and then from today, how do we promote a way for humanity to endure long after our children and our grandchildren are here? So the name of the book is To Care for Peace, it is a global mandate to secure the second human evolution in perpetuity. Now, what that does is that let you see, you see everything that's inside the book right on the front cover because it says to care for peace. And it says it's the mandate to secure the second human evolution in perpetuity. So anybody who reads that front cover and just keeps walking is fine with me because they've got the language started. They've got the words started in their heads because they're going to say right away, well, what the heck is the second human evolution? <laughs> and then I have to explain, well, the first human evolution is over. It started two and a half years, two and a half million years ago, and it ended sometime in the middle of the 60s when mutually assured destruction reminded us at that moment that humanity had nailed its coffin for how we were able to control nature. We got to the point where, hey, we can blow everybody up. We're in charge. God is no longer in charge. We're in charge. And that's when the peace movement started. That's when existentialism came to America. That's when all sorts of things happened in the mid-60s. So that's the end. So where are we now? Well, since the mid-60s and now, we're in the suspended human evolution, the suspended human evolution. 
a time when we're flopping around like fish on deck and and we, we don't know what we're doing and we're looking around at these wars that are going on and saying what the well, well, what's that? I thought we learned that we don't have to fight wars. I thought we could talk. What's happening? So a lot of this is residue that is still here from the first human evolution. And we've got to look at this and say, okay, what are we going to do? Are we going to be able to create the second human evolution? And as a planner, I kick in the pre-planning process and say, okay, we've got to be using a different language to be talking about what we need to do in the second human evolution. That's the gist of the book. So that you say, okay, well, okay, now what? Okay, back up, Jeff. What What do you mean? What? What's this to care for peace thing? Well, what I got to say is, look, we can't kill for peace anymore. That that didn't work. And, and besides, Peace cannot be described as the time after a war. It can't be described as the time between wars. And I mean, you know that because after a war, you got the reconstruction of the Civil War, which was not peaceful at all. And then, or the uh, the reign of terror after the French Revolution, that was not peaceful. Peaceful, if you call peace what you had in Germany after the First World War, it was so not peaceful that Hitler was able to arrive and we could have the Second World War. So forget that definition of peace and forget the definition of peace of a somebody sitting on top of a mountain and crossing their legs and and saying um and and then looking down to the bottom of the mountain and seeing everybody else who's in misery. So we have to redefine peace to be something that you have a feeling that you get when you care. Because I believe after seeing millions and millions of nurses all over the world that care, the active process of care promotes a dynamic peace that you feel. It's very simple. To care for peace is what we can start using, or in the case of nurses and teachers and people like you who care, we can start using what is already in the human nature to start moving in the direction towards the second human evolution. But we have to use these words, first human evolution, suspended human evolution, the second human evolution. We have to use those words as we move into this discussion and say, okay, what does the second human evolution look like? Well, no wars, <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, how do we have a sustainable planet? And yeah, we've got some problems that we have to deal with, which is very interesting because right now, we know what the problems are. We're looking at global warming. We're looking at the seas rising. We're looking at migrants all over North Africa hopping in boats and trying to get the heck out of Africa and go north. And we got what the border problem in, in America and people from South America and Central America trying to go north. It's like people are trying to escape. So what does this mean? Well, it means we have 
a population problem. Do we keep using the words population control? Or do we start looking at something that is more personal? Again, just like care for peace. What what can we use that will be words that people can wrap their arms around? And I think that the key word would be continuity, population continuity. Because population continuity is something that I can internalize. In fact, my wife and I internalized population continuity because part of our immortality desire to have children and children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, that wonderful feeling that we're procreating our own humanity, our own family name, our, our own bloodline is connected to the continuity. So let's use that word, what my wife and I did, was we had one child each. That means we both had two children. And then I got fixed because the least we can do for our own population continuity is to replicate ourselves. Now, that's where it begins. This whole process of caring for peace needs to begin. As I mentioned in the book, and I try to express in in terms that people can start using when discussing this among themselves. And it's these are words that we can use in this dialogue that has to be shared among everybody in every language all over the world. Now, this is where you come in, because you're doing something that I don't know if the world has really grasped what this whole podcast concept is all about. But if you look at the fact that there's millions of them all over the world right now, see, what you're doing is you're doing something that is not in a political context. It's just, it's in the internet. It's on the airwaves. You and I are talking right now. You can take these words and start using them. Oh, please put them in your own words. These these words need to be put into the words of every language in the world. Because the first human evolution, the suspended human evolution, the second human evolution, those are not words that are religious words. They're not political words. These are words that we are using as tools for the discussion. So please add your own tools to this discussion. Don't just use my tools. Take these ideas, these concepts that need to be added to what I've written in the book and start using them in your discussion with all the other people that you're working with. You are the key to the communication that needs to occur during the pre-planning phase of designing, planning, and then finally implementing the second human evolution because we're nowhere near that yet. We have to use these tools. Now, in the book, I have four templates I have four templates that the reader can use to look at themselves from a personal standpoint, from a relational standpoint, 
from a organizational standpoint and most important, a cultural standpoint, because there's a lot of things in the book that might get someone to say, oh, you're a Karl Marx uh, communist. But the fact is, no, I believe that we need to use this democratic process that we have and capitalism combined with the rule of law that regulates our ability to greed, allow greed to expand into our culture more than it already has. We need to have self-control and community control and environmental control. So these are the things that I've put in the book to allow people to help move this process along. But the process is very simple. It's pre-planning. It's not planning because I'm a planner. The biggest problem I have if I go to an architectural planning session, session when there's hospital administrators and architects and engineers and everybody's ready to build a brand new hospital is, wait a minute, guys, hold down, hold back. We don't know whether you even need to build a hospital. Oh, we already got these binders. Oh, take a look at this. And I'll take a look at the binders. And there's no information there about how the hospital is going to be used because they were using statistics that were, oh, it's population growth statistics, but they weren't paying any attention to what patients might be able to pay for the services in the hospital. <laughs> minor problem i mean we we excuse me it's a major problem because i've been in situations where those binders don't have the right information and and they've built the hospital anyway and the hospital is a ghost town right now it isn't being used as a hospital because it was the wrong thing they didn't do their pre-planning process and so that's what we have to do now and you know what it is it's talking it's discussions. It is what you are in charge of doing with your podcast. Now, how long did it take you to write your book? 50 years. I started writing the templates 50 years ago with a very dear friend of mine, Dr. Robert Richard, who passed away. He was a Kaiser Foundation International a PhD who helped design the whole health maintenance organization process. I was so fortunate to have this guy as my mentor, but he's the one who started me on the road, and then he dropped dead, which is really too bad, um, because he'd be with me today. Uh, and then what happened was I, was I had been in the United States Coast Guard uh, as a hospital corpsman reserve in the, in, the, in the Coast Guard. And so I had that feeling. And this is when I was in the 20s, my 20s. It was during the Vietnam War. And I, I realized what it was to feel care and to have that feeling of peace. I mean, it was incredible. 
And then I started working in hospitals and I met the nurses and I saw. So this, this book really evolved from my experience in the United States in hospitals and in clinics and working with doctors and nurses all over the United States, mostly in the deep south. And then it expanded to work when I was working in Nigeria and Vietnam and then all, a whole bunch of different countries and then finally in, in um, Myanmar, Burma. Uh, and, and so the ideas just gelled and I wrote these ideas down on pieces of paper and then I finally had a computer, well, excuse me, a typewriter. And so I wrote my ideas down and then I had a computer and then I was able to write my ideas down. And so finally what happened was we built a prototype community development and health center in Myanmar that would be a prototype for 250 more of the buildings of the same size and type all over the rural area of one of the most destitute countries in the world, Myanmar. It is just as bad as any country in Africa, but it's in Asia and nobody's looking at that area. I have to explain people where Myanmar is on the map. Because most people don't know where it is, but we had an organization that was named Care for Peace. It was a 501c3, it was a nonprofit organization, and it was an international nonprofit organization. And during that time, I had already grasped that wonderful feeling of care for peace in my own spirit. We decided to experiment with okay, what would happen if we cared for peace? on a national level, but let's start at the village level. So let's take it from the personal to the the community, the family and the community level. Little by little, this idea of care for peace began with the self and went and got bigger and bigger. And I suddenly realized that the idea of care for peace on a community level is very simple. The premise is that if you can care for the people in a village, this is a remote village in the middle of nowhere, if you can care for them in a way of health care, you give them some community development, you help build their roads, you give them business tools so that they can develop their business, then guess what? The government and the people have peace. It's, you know, this whole idea of care for peace that starts with my heart and then expands with all these wonderful nurses and doctors and teachers and people like you, all of a sudden we say, wait a minute, maybe we can do this on a global level. And that is the answer to your question. It started 50 years ago, 50 years ago, but it ended when the military coup in Myanmar, took over the democracy and kicked out the government that we were working with so that I couldn't build 250 more facilities. So guess what? I was like, I was amputated. I was not able to continue doing what we were doing to be able to get care for peace on a national level. So what did I do? I came home and I wrote a book. Is uh, To Care for, Fee for Peace, your book, self-published, traditionally published, or published by a hybrid press? It is self-published. I published it. I didn't want to take it to any 
I mean, what, what, what do you do? You get, the, uh, not the counter, you get an agent and then the, the I don't know. You know, I just didn't want to do that. I, I wanted to write the book and I didn't want to have somebody looking over my shoulders, except I had a whole bunch of different uh, editors helping me and friends because they'd read it and they'd say, Jeff, <laughs> no, because I'm not really a writer. Oh, I'm a technical writer. Believe me, I can I can write all sorts of technical stuff on why you design or why you don't design a hospital, and here's how you do it. So, uh, yeah, but I I didn't know how to write a book, and yeah, I'm going to be writing another book. I've already started it, and uh, it's just uh, I I didn't want to have. I just didn't want to go do that whole bureaucratic thing. Um, I would have loved to have some academic editor help because I don't think my my book is is academic level. It's just to the regular normal people out there. And I'm sure that if somebody tear, tears it apart, they could rip it to shreds because of I don't maybe I don't give enough examples of something or I should have done this or I should have done that. No, I just wrote the book <laughs> and got it out there. You've uh, you mentioned uh, moments ago, you've written articles for various uh, healthcare related organizations. Yeah. Uh, what were some of the articles called and what were some of them about and what groups did you write them for? Oh, um, well, I, healthcare design, um, architecture, uh, especially um, patient care and quality review magazines. Um, let's see, hospital trustee ma ma magazines. Uh, the, the thing is, I was uh, a consultant. Uh, once I left the Coast Guard, I ended up working with Kaiser Hospitals and Clinics, and then I worked with Kaiser Foundation International, and then I started my own business and ended up being a consultant to Columbia Healthcare that owned 195 hospitals, um, Catholic Healthcare West, Adventist Health. So I worked some of, I was a consultant to some of the biggest hospital corporations in the world. And I absolutely was able to hone a lot of my my skills of designing and communicating, but most important to be able to communicate people what, what a need is. Here's an example. One of the things that happened was I'd walk in hospitals, and I'd see these hospitals that are designed like hotels. You go to a nursing station or what they now call a patient care station, which is where the nurses congregate. And then to get to a patient room, they go down a long, long corridor. And the patient's rooms are tucked away in the either side of the corridors. Well, this is a hotel. This is not a place where you should be serving in a healthcare standpoint. So I started saying, well, this is this is not right. You need to design a nursing station with patient rooms around the nursing station. Well, guess what? It's pretty much already designed because a lot of your intensive care units in hospitals are already like that. But I'd go to hospitals that have an intensive care unit 
where they could only see maybe one or two patient rooms <laughs> from where they're sitting. And I'm saying, no, here's what you do. You took, you put a table in the middle and that way nurses and doctors can sit around the table and talk the way they do when they're having dinner each other. They can see each other. And on the other side of the table on all sides are patient rooms that have glass windows all around so that, hey, you're sitting across from me. And by the way, your patient just started pulling out his trach tube from your throat. Um, oh, thanks for talking. <laughs> so you can actually see your patients. And by the way, they can also walk to their patients without going down long corridors and having sore feet at the end of the day. So I wrote tons of articles that were about the no hidden patient. I even had a website at the time called nohiddenpatient.com <laughs> because I was determined to see hospitals being built so that, and I'm, I mean, even in emergency departments, I go to emergency departments even today and they've got observation rooms that you can't see from the nursing station. Why call it an an observation room. I call them oxymoron rooms. So, uh, you know, I've, I've had a great time in my life because I've been able to work with some of the greatest architects, engineers, nurses, doctors, administrators, hospital administrators. Oh, my favorite ones were the, were the directors of nurses. I mean, these, these people really, that, that they really want to care for peace, the care for the peace of the patient. That's just, you know, I had the job of life. And so it was easy to write articles. So thank you for asking that question. It's yeah, everything I answer is going to come right back to caring for peace. So go ahead, try, uh, try asking me another question. <laughs> I have uh, one final question. Uh, you made a couple mentions in this interview of uh, your work as a hospital corpsman in the U.S. Coast Guard. What were your duties like as a hospital corpsman in the Coast Guard? Well, guess what? The first duty was bedpans. I had to deliver bedpans to the guys who were in their beds, and they did their thing inside the bedpan. And then I'd have to take the bedpan to the toilet, and they have these little bars that you pull uh, down and wash the bedpans up. And believe me, sometimes I had to change my clothes after that process, but I started from the bedpan up. And that way, when I'm talking to people and like the hospital, the architects who've never even worked in a hospital, I say, I know what I'm talking about because I've started from the bedpan up. And then they gave me, I got to hand out meds. They, I'd have a med tray and these little cups in it with all the pills in it. And I, and I didn't even put the pills in right away. I just handed the the, the pills out. Then they gave me the trust to put the pills in there and hand out the tray. And then I, I got to give shots. That was really cool. And then I got to do bandages. So the, the most wonderful thing I feel about the military is that they graduate people based on what they do, and then they teach them while they're doing it. And it's it's one of the things that I I love uh, loved about the Coast Guard as a hospital corpsman is that they they let me do more and more things until finally I was 
helping do wound dressings and I was helping minor surgeries. You know, I was scrub nurse, you know, where I got to wash the the uh, utensils and put them in the autoclave and, and you know, sterilize them. And, you know, it, it, it was, a, oh, I even did laboratory stuff, you know, centrifuge, um, blood centrifuge. I did a whole bunch of stuff. Oh, radiology. I even got to take x-rays. So it was like, I, I got to really experience the whole process of not just caring for peace, but providing clinical delivery. Because one of the things people don't understand is that even though they call a hospital a care organization, a hospital is for clinical delivery. Care is something that is a part of that Nurses deliver care. Doctors are responsible for the clinical delivery. So it's wonderful that doctors can care and nurses can provide clinical delivery. So I hope that answers your question. I got to do both. Yes, that answers my question. And Jeffrey Charles Hardy, thank you for appearing on Apollo Papyrus. And uh, I thank you for... Uh, your uh, discussion about uh, uh, hospital architecture that I didn't even have to ask a question about. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, no, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. And I just the most important thing that I have said is that the ball that you are carrying right now is a very precious ball. Your, your job is I don't know if anybody told you that there was a job because I think podcasting is something that allows you to do it with the way you want. The way you want is absolutely right, but the job is communicate. And your communication responsibility as of right now <laughs> is to put it in your own words. Let's start the ball rolling when it comes to the pre-planning of the second human evolution. Because it's a lot of fun, I'll tell you that much. It is a lot of fun. You don't have anybody sitting there talking about all the negative stuff. You've got people sitting there saying, oh, I, I've got an idea. And, oh, I have a lot of hope. Here's what I think we can do with my hope. I mean, it's wonderful. That's your job. Harry, Harry, the hope. It was wonderful to interview Jeffrey about subjects as varied as writing, hospital architecture, and humanity. This is Aaron Apollo Camp reminding y'all to write and read your passion. Bye for now. Remember to subscribe to the Apollo Papyrus YouTube channel at www.youtube.com forward slash at Apollo Papyrus and the Apollo Papyrus Substack newsletter at apollopapyrus.substack.com. Y'all can visit the Apollo Papyrus website at camparinapollo.witsite.com forward slash Apollo Papyrus and follow Apollo Papyrus on threads, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr at Apollo Papyrus. Copyright 2024, Aaron Apollo Camp, all rights reserved. This podcast episode is intended for the private listening of our audience. Any reuse or retransmission of this episode without the express written consent of the podcast host is prohibited, except under fair use guidelines.
royalty-free music and sound effects obtained from https colon forward slash forward slash www.zapsplat.com. <laughs>